Amen. Please open your Bibles uh, to the New Testament, to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians as we finish chapter 1 and start chapter 2. Welcome to those who are tuning in uh, online. It's good to have you joining with us or watching later through the video that we hope to save. As we attend to God's word, I'll read it out and uh, then we'll talk about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're beginning in verse 23 and going into chapter 2, verse 11. This is the word of God. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. We're working sequentially through this letter, and uh, we're going to find out a lot about the person of Paul, a lot about his ministry, but we're also going to find out a lot about us and what it means to be a church and what a church should be doing. It was interesting in the previous section, up in verse 20, there was a word that may just be the most universally known word in the world. Had you seen that in verse 20? He talks about an amen. Through Christ we utter our amen to God for his glory. It's, it's, it's a, this Hebrew Aramaic word is now known in English and it's known around the world in so many ways. It's interesting that uh, as Paul talked about Christians being able to give our amen to God, he's going to talk in today's passage about how we work together. He's talking about how I want to be a part of, of the joy of the local church. So it's interesting to combine the two thoughts. Dr. Douglas Kelly said something about the amen that will help launch us today. He said this, Paul here shows 
and, and follow his innovative use of the word. Paul here shows that those who are amen by God, those who are blessed in Jesus, receive all the promises in Jesus, Paul shows that those who are amen by God must re-echo that amen to other people. One of the reasons, he says, God leaves you in the world and does not take you to be with himself the moment you get saved is that you, Christian, may live and function as his amen to the general public, to your little circle, wherever he puts you. Interesting. God has done a work in us in Christ. All the promises are yes and amen in Christ. And through Christ, we offer our amen to God. That's God's design. Christians are trophies of grace set out in the world, not taken back to heaven, so that we can serve the purposes of God. So keep that in mind as Paul begins explaining why he didn't come, uh, what he hopes for the local church, so that they keep working properly and serve God's glory. You may be wondering about the sermon title this morning, Joyful Synergy. In verse 24, Paul uses the word, the Greek equivalent of that when he says, we work with you for your joy. And I wanted to highlight that in our introduction this morning because that's really the goal. Paul wants the Corinthian church to be working properly for the glory of God. He wants the Corinthian church to keep giving the amen to the Lord for all to hear. He doesn't want them to keep punishing the evildoer. He doesn't want him to stay angry with himself or anyone. He wants all the believers to pursue joy and work together. Maybe you've heard that word synergy before, the prefix and then the word for work. Synergy, work with. If you check the English dictionary, you'll see something like this. Synergy is the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents to produce, get this, to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. We can do more together than we can separately. There's a great visual if you've ever watched YouTube and seen these, these videos that there was some kind of car accident or a car rolled where it shouldn't be and a group of people come and if you have enough people, just regular people, you can lift a car. Have you seen that? Regular people, they, well, some of them are strong, but regular people working together can accomplish more than they can individually. And it, it's astounding how that works. Paul here is not writing to just go on the defensive. Oh, you complaining Corinthians, let me tell you why I didn't visit you as per my original itinerary he is trying to remind them to get back on track as a church and live for the glory of God so that those amens keep going out. We need to work together, people. That's what he's saying. And I think we'll see that is his message to us. And as Paul conveys that, he speaks with a, a certain personal vulnerability. He doesn't assert his rights here. Paul was the biggest one who was offended by this situation. And yet he minimizes it. If I've had any pain, it's not much. You've all had some pain too. That's the way he's speaking. Because he wants to see things mended and working well together. 
Paul Barnett says, in expressing his dependence on them as one who works with them, Paul is stating a fundamental principle of gospel relationships. He is not self-sufficient, but is dependent, and they are too. If the gospel has come to you and you're a Christian, you are not independent. You're not self-dependent. You're dependent on Christ and called to be a part of the body of Christ. Need I remind you what Paul covered in his first letter in 1 Corinthians 12, the body and the different gifts, and he lists the different gifts, but he asserts, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each, to each Christian, is given the manifestation of his spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts are for the common good. We're not independent. We are interdependent. There's a lot of theology behind what Paul's writing here today. Let's jump in and work through a few things that he says clearly. And I've organized it under three headings. First, uh, kind of reaching towards the application of it. A gospel ministry acts in love and seeks joy. That should be the flavor of it. Here, Paul, he's been offended, he's, he's, he's been wronged, and there's sin to be dealt with, but he's not grinding away at that. He's got no root of bitterness in himself. He's moving forward because the sin has been taken care of. A gospel ministry acts in love and seeks joy. Uh, you see that in his uh, first term here in verse 23. He begins his explanation. He says, with God as my witness, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Paul's change of plans weren't about some personal comfort or personal whim. He said, I'm thinking of you. And I want to act in love towards you. I want to minimize your pain and increase your joy. He says so much explicitly in verse 23. I want to spare you. And, and in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you and there Paul says as I wrote to you he's talking about a letter between first and second Corinthians that we don't have in my notes I always just call it the lost letter it's the intermediate letter and that letter explained how somebody needed to be disciplined and action was taken and things were on the mend so in this letter, he's going to say, lighten up on that guy who's now repented, and let's move forward together. But he writes this letter rather than come and anticipating a conflict. He writes this letter so that they can have joy and work together. He said in, in chapter 2, verse 4, I don't want to cause you pain. I don't want to cause you unnecessary pain. Well, the apostle wasn't hedging words. If he needed to call somebody out, he would. He only have to read his letter to the Galatians. He, he can make them squirm. But he doesn't want to cause them any unnecessary pain. What's this word for pain? It means real distress of, of your inner person. This word for pain is used elsewhere in Matthew 17 uh, as Jesus predicts his own uh, passion and how he would be handled and how the disciples would react. Uh, he said they will kill uh, him, the, the Christ, and he will be raised on the third day. And the disciples, hearing him, were greatly distressed. They had that pain. Jesus is going to die? When you get that phone call, 
it's a state police or it's a hospital and all of a sudden <clears throat> that painful action of your heart reacting to some news. Paul says, I don't want to cause you a heart attack. Or similarly in Matthew 26, um, it's used and translated sorrowful. Paul uses this word for pain even in Romans chapter 14. As he's talking about relationships between Christians. Romans 14 verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So in Romans, when he's talking about relationships, we ought to be careful not to cause each other pain of heart, heartache, and, and trouble. If it's not necessary. So that's what Paul says here. Corinthians, I'm sending this letter. I'm not making another visit just yet because I don't want to cause you alarm or pain. But rather, I want you to have joy. He longs to share the joy of the Corinthians. He longs to be happy in their happiness. They're his, his, his fruit, the fruit of his ministry. He planted the church. There are Christians in Corinth because of Paul's labors for 18 months, and he cares what happens. And he wants them to have joy. Further, we note that it's a ministry from his heart. It's a ministry from his heart. It comes out clearly in verse 4. To express his love, the word there is agape. The aim of Paul's ministry is for their good. The aim of Christian ministry today is the good of God's people. The elders of this church and this preacher know that I'm not just here uh, so that I feel good and get to do what I like to do. I'm here for you. I sweat and toil and pray over, over these sermons because I want to be able to be used of God to give you what you need to hear. What I need to hear. And it's a ministry from the heart. I'm so thankful for a missionary who got a hold of me when I was in seminary. I was at a very big church running a very big college ministry uh, and had an associate. We had a couple hundred kids working for us. And uh, meeting with this missionary, he came and gave me some feedback after the class, and I was very thankful for that. I think that's why I was there. Uh, and one of the things he said uh, was, was the answer to my question. He says, what's the most important thing I should pray for as as a seminarian uh, and preparing for ministry or leading a Sunday school class. And he, he wrote three letters on my note sheet. He wrote HFP. I said, okay, who's HFP? And he explained, I keep those letters on my prayer list to remind me to pray for a heart for people. I've got a lot of goofy little acronyms, initials, and symbols. If you ever looked at my journals, you need an archaeologist. But HFP is my reminder that I can't just do an information dump. I can't just tell stories and make you laugh or cry. But a ministry has to have heart. I thank God for answering that prayer. A ministry... Those are its aims. Well, further, under the second heading, I want to look at the middle part of this passage and talk about how a gospel church takes sin seriously. That's part of what Paul's communicating, trying to get the Corinthians back on track. 
And yes, we take sin seriously. It's addressed in the epistles of Paul, taking sin seriously. If you remember 1 Corinthians, he has a whole chapter, chapter 5, where he says, you Corinthians are so far off track, you've got somebody who's now in in an intimate relationship with his stepmother, and that's a big no. That's a big sin. Deal with it and deal with it now. It's immorality. It's not right. How can you tolerate that? And there were multiple levels of problems. The sin himself, the sinner, and that adultery relationship, but also the church that thought it was okay. Paul wrote and addressed sin in the church in his first letter. Some people think in this letter, when Paul says, lighten up on the guy who's repented, that he's talking about the 1 Corinthians 5 sinner. No, I don't think he is. And there are a couple of clues about who Paul is talking about here as he talks about one who uh, has, has to be forgiven and, and, and reaffirmed. I'm getting ahead of myself. But Paul t- calls this church to take sin seriously. If it was someone whose immorality was public and open and had been dealt with, he would have spoken of it differently. Here, he's talking very personally. He says, if anyone has caused pain, in verse 5, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure to uh, the church. Paul's being very uh, 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 self-humbling, because who he has in mind here is the guy who caused all the trouble, the leader of the troublemakers in Corinth, who attacked Paul as being weak, The same guy who said Paul's not coming back because he changes his mind. He lied when he promised to come. The same man who blasted Paul and blasted him publicly is the guy that had been disciplined. And now Paul talks about him here. He caused me pain, but he really caused pain for the whole church. You see, sin is painful for the whole church. Someone had hurt Paul there. Seriously, Paul had written that lost letter and and talked turkey to him and and to the church, and it had been dealt with. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, in part, faithful are the wounds of a friend. When Paul had had to call out that sin, he did. Now, as he writes in this letter, he says, yes, sin was painful, it's been dealt with, but you'll need to move on towards forgiveness. And from this letter, when he said in verse uh, 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Verse 7, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Paul's talking about the process. And yes, we take sin seriously and we exercise church discipline. He, He explains those steps. The Lord Jesus taught those steps. But he said the end should lead to restoration. We take sin seriously, not just to stamp on it. And if any Christian's um, out of line in sins, you give them the boot, get them out of the church. No. The goal is always restoration of the one who's disciplined. You can see the parallel with parental discipline. And the word is really training. Discipline does not mean punishment per se. Discipline is the process of shaping and training. And sometimes punishment is involved. 
but we shape our children because we love them and want them to grow up. That's why the Bible says spare the rod and spoil the child. Church discipline should lead to restoration. This passage, actually, one commentary goes on and lists from this passage seven steps of church discipline. I left those out of the sermon today, but just in general, you can see from this text that church discipline really should start with a grief for sin. There's a grief and a sorrow over sin. And that it should be the act of a majority of the fellowship who addresses church discipline, not a single person who's the sin police, but it's the majority of the church. And Paul talked about that here. Um, that uh, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. And that when the discipline's punishment has brought about repentance and change and godly sorrow, that's good. That's the goal. That's the where restoration takes place. And the next step has to be forgiveness and restoration. So the Corinthian church had, had clamped down on this guy who had offended Paul. And here Paul says, you have to practice forgiveness. Paul was speaking the truth in love. He would write to the, the Ephesians in chapter 4. He said, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4. And I bring that passage in to remind you of a couple of things. The body has different parts, and God wants the parts to work together. In fact, that's one of the little phrases in between those comments. He says, when each part is working properly... It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christians aren't perfect. We're going to sin and we're going to stumble and, and, and we recover from that. If your brother has offended you, go to your brother. If you've offended someone, go to your brother. And the two meet and they reconcile. And if someone's having a hard time, the church gets involved. Sometimes there's church discipline. But that's for the goal of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. So that all those parts, people for whom Christ died, might work together and be built up in love. So that we can keep giving our amen out. So people can see in Christians, hey, that gospel must really work. <laughs> Look at that group. They're really different, but they all love each other. And they're all doing what churches should do. A gospel church takes sin seriously. Paul had addressed it. And here Paul is, is not beating it to death, but rather he says it should lead to forgiveness. So the third heading here, as Paul wraps up the passage, he's talking about forgiveness. And the first thing it, it, that's very clear here is that Christians must be forgiving. Let's look at what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, picking up in uh, verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you. This is the apostle writing. He could command them. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The troublemaker, the rabble rouser, the schismatic, the, the one who really stirred the pot, the one who said those hateful things, and all the people heard it. 
the one who put down the Apostle Paul who had suffered so much for the gospel, that guy who was too big for his britches has repented and he's sorrowful. So Paul says, church, you've got to forgive him and you've got to start loving him again. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Paul's writing to remind them of the gospel significance of the need to forgive that man. You claim to be Christians, you claim to believe the gospel in Corinth, and yet you're not going to give grace to this guy? Do I need to remind you of the, the parable of Jesus about the unmerciful servant? Do you know how that went? king had shown mercy to a servant freedom from a debt he could never pay and he turns around and strangles a guy for 50 bucks and sends him to jail the unmerciful servant was punished severely Paul is saying here that a gospel church a ministry where Christians are working together and giving their amen to God for the world to see must be forgiving Forgiven people forgive. Say that to yourself. Forgiven people forgive. So if you expect God to forgive you, you must be forgiving. And, and don't think that we're saying you have to be a doormat. You forgive people even while they're abusing you. There are procedures and, and proper ways to forgive. When someone asks for forgiveness, the Christian is obligated to forgive. So Paul here is writing about this fellow. Uh, John Wesley, you've probably heard of John Wesley over in England, uh, an evangelist in the Anglican church and eventually preached outside and, and uh, it rubbed people the wrong way when he was preaching the gospel and preaching about forgiveness. John Wesley just happened to bump into one of the great generals of Great Britain, uh, General Oglethorpe, a name that's not too hard to forget. And uh, Oglethorpe... Uh, I think replied at one point to the preaching or to the preacher afterwards, Harumph, I never forgive. And John Wesley said, Oh, sir, then I hope you never sin. This man that Paul's writing about, he's described in verse 7. Uh, or he, it says, forgive him, comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed, what does it say, by excessive sorrow. When someone's caught in their sin, and we see it sometimes in children, they get caught, I'm sorry, mommy, I'm sorry. You can see the sorrow for their sin. Sometimes people are just saying, oh boy, I'm sorry I got caught. That's a different facial expression, a different attitude. Parents still have some work to do. But when there's real sorrow for sin, that's what you want to see. Paul here is warning about this Christian. They were, they were pressing him so much. Paul was fearful of excessive sorrow. As Derek Prime says, sorrow is the right response for sin. Overwhelming sorrow, however, means one will despair of ever being forgiven or things being put right. And God has nothing to do with that. How many times has God forgiven you? How many times must I forgive my brother, Lord? Jesus had an answer for that. 
Isn't it interesting? This letter Paul wrote to explain why he didn't come, what he wants to see happen, is filled with rich messages for what it means to do ministry and to be the church. Christians must be forgiving. And, and it's not just forgiving. Okay, I forgive you. You've got to go over there and give that guy a hug. What? Come on, give him a hug. Paul says, uh, comfort him and to reaffirm your love for him. Okay, I love him. No, reaffirm it. Why, why does Paul not just say love him? Why does he say reaffirm your love? Because here Paul says, you need to make it clear. You need to make it a matter of certainty that this brother is one whom you love, even if you have to make a public announcement. Christians, we know that we need to be forgiving, and when we see people at church that maybe have wronged us in the past, we smile and we're not mad at them anymore, but do you love them? How, how can I turn the other cheek? How can I love someone? If you're a Christian, Christ enables you to do the very things he commands. Love one another sincerely from the heart. Bible commands to those by God's spirit and grace can obey. The mark of the Christian is your love for God and love one for another. If you don't love God, you don't love one another, you're not a Christian. So gospel church must practice forgiveness. Uh, we need to model forgiveness. I think that's what Paul does here. Isn't it interesting in verse 10, Paul, Paul gives that if clause. Paul says in verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake of your sake in the presence of Christ. What does he mean if I have forgiven? Is, is this fine print that lets Paul off the hook about forgiveness? No, Paul is using uh, hypothetical language to state what is in reality a fact. I have forgiven him. So don't keep punishing the troublemaker who troubled me because I've forgiven him. And I've done it because I stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm accountable to Jesus. And by implication, he's saying, you are accountable to Jesus. Show your forgiveness if you've been forgiven. Paul's personal model is set before us. So how do we model forgiveness? Well, we let other people know that the relationship is restored. And we also model forgiveness by not staying angry. We also model forgiveness by obeying Hebrews 12, 15. Hebrews 12, 15, anyone? Let no root of bitterness remain in you. I think that's one of the hardest commands for modern day American Christians. We like to keep score. We don't, we don't often forget. I remember the first time my wife sinned against me early in our marriage. She hedged about explaining something. I said, oh, why don't you just tell me? I remembered shortly thereafter, this is decades ago shortly thereafter wanting to bring that up again oh, are, are, are you going to tell me half the truth again I felt that impulse but it also looked ugly and inappropriate on that occasion I remember resisting the impulse I hope I haven't given into it on other times I'm thankful for 37 years of marriage 
To model forgiveness means we let no root of bitterness stay in. We don't dredge up the old sin and wave it around in someone's face. That's pretty hard. That's pretty hard. Somebody uh, might come to you and say, oh, did you see what uh, Bob did over here, Larry? Or, uh, oh, yeah, he did that once before. We need to be wise, but we don't bring up old sins to shame someone or to pain someone. As Dr. Doug Kelly said, great theologian, still alive, he said, what is forgiven must be forgotten. I know that's pretty deep theology. It's true. How does Jesus deal with you, my friends? How does our Father in heaven deal with you? He puts your sins on the farthest ends of the sea, buries them in the sea, not to bring them up. You have someone who died for those sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in your relationship, if you're acting by grace and loving your brothers and sisters, you put the offense away when it's forgiven, when it's done. Hebrews 12.15 puts it in the language of grace. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it become defiled. When Paul's talking about being forgiving, he's not just saying that would be the icing on the cake. He said there'd be no cake if you don't forgive, if you don't really understand how grace works. We're not talking about being extra nice in our Christianity. We're talking about the essence of it. We need to model forgiveness. We need to be forgiven. And he throws in Satan here at the end. Do you know why? Because it's Satan's design to attack Christ by attacking the body of Christ and disrupting churches. By causing roots of bitterness to flourish. He wants to water them and fertilize them. He wants to keep people from forgiving and reaffirming love. Paul says, take heed of Satan's designs, right at the end of our passage. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What are his designs? Well, we learned in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, he cast doubt on the goodness of God. Do you remember that? Oh, so God's not going to let you eat from any tree. He plays with your theology. God's kind of mean. He doesn't want you to be like him. That's part of Satan's design. Satan whispers to the Christians at the church, you know, that guy can't really serve or do anything because you know what he did in his former way of life. Or do you know he he still does this, he still does that. He sows dissension in the body. He'd rather have his focus on sin than grace. What are the designs of the devil? Well, We could spend all day talking about them. Remember that. He he messes with God's goodness. He casts uh, doubt and twists God's word. He's the father of lies, John 8, 44. And he even distorts and prevents effective gospel witness. Acts chapter 13, the devil's at work. And Paul was, uh, Saul and Barnabas were there on Cyprus. And there's this magician who's opposing them. And they called him the son of the devil. 
the devil opposes gospel growth in a place. He doesn't want to see churches started. He doesn't want to see churches gospel driven. He wants to use his designs to mess up the work. I don't like it when something's not working. Why isn't it working? Why aren't some churches working together as we should? The synergy that's required. The parts of the body when each part is doing its part, building itself up in love. How come it doesn't always work? Either sin is being tolerated or sin is being persecuted. There are two extremes. You can exercise church discipline so that nobody measures up and nobody's ever forgiven and everybody's gone. Or you can tolerate sin and never have church discipline and then become a sinful church and die that way. We have to deal with sin, but when it's dealt with, enjoy fellowship, forgiven and loving. I hope you catch a flavor of that. Kent Hughes says, we must take to heart that the commitments of praying for the church, participating in the regular services of the church and the ministries of the church, supporting its missions with our resources and submitting to the constituted leadership, we must take to heart that these are not options but are rather biblical imperatives. Take heed. Well, In closing, let me mention the three words that I wanted to leave you with. Work, grasp, and be. Work together for the gospel. Grasp the significance of the local church and love the church. For Paul, the church was central to Christian existence. He never conceived of Christians living apart from the visible church, says Kent Hughes. And then be... Be forgiving. Be forgiving. Be loving. Be reaffirming one with another. And remember the Christ who demands that we forgive empowers us to do so. Oh, church, make visible the gospel in this and every way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your inspired word which enlightens us about the nature of ministry, the nature of being a church and what our part is in it. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, forgiving us. May we be more forgiving one with another. Guard our hearts that no root of bitterness grow up in me that I might be the cause of dissension or division and not working together as we should and could. Father, we pray your blessings upon this congregation today. May all who hear this word obey it and please our Father in heaven. And may we share in one another's joy and happiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.